I'm just going to jump right in and say, bringing up Trump as the first thing we're going to talk about, when it's going to be a week behind, I'm just not sure it's worth the gambit here. Uh, Are we going to, how many listeners do we lose to Trump derangement syndrome simply because we're going to talk about him and not immediately decry him being the cause of all things because we're going to compare his COVID flu Twitter reality to our understanding of a brief history of power as the two white guys, obviously bigoted because we're white guys as we are. So you got to put up with us, but we hopefully can help you learn a thing or two about what happened before you came around. I'm Jonathan Visk. Adam Coons is here. Adam, are we going to talk about Trump? What are we doing? We're going to talk about Trump because Trump in real time, I find extremely valuable, not necessarily for any specific policy, but for his reality as kind of the kid that comes into the playroom and a bunch of other kids are hogging the Legos and he just comes in and just kicks the Legos over. (laughs) And so the kids that were hogging the Legos are very angry, but all the kids that didn't have any access to Legos are very happy that that kid did that. So why are so many kids that don't have access to Legos also unhappy with him kicking the Legos in, in the name of right white racism as he does so often and constantly. Right. So that has to do with something that is really particular to the modern age. And that is that because of something that I think you could really broadly call leftism, that we have, in sketch, not in detail, traced back to at least the French Revolution. Even when people are in power on the left, they have to position themselves as the defenders of the downtrodden and je- and often as the downtrodden. So no, no matter how much money or access or power or whatever they have, they have to think of themselves, it really is a religious phenomenon as the downtrodden. Uh, yeah, a, rigi- a religion in which the victimized reigns. And if I'm more victimized than you, then I get to win the argument, no matter what the facts might say. Why exactly. is it called leftism? What's left about it? That comes from where different delegates of different parties sat in the National Assembly after the French Revolution. So toward the right would be those who had a more moderate take on the revolution. And that's I'll explain why I don't like these terms for that reason. And those who wanted to prosecute the revolution to what they understood as its natural outcomes were on the left. And so that's where the terms left and right come from. Prior to that, they're not they're not operative in politics. So, so if you want to have something that really is about old dead white guys, the terms right and left being a French what <laughs> senatorial description, Congress yeah. congressional description, um, it's about as useless a set of terminology as we could we could have. Um, I mean, as, as Benjamin, son of the right hand. I mean, there's there's other uses of right and left in history that have value to them, right? And just to let it be left and right. Anyway, to call it leftism, I like this French-style revolutionaryism. And let's bring this back then. So so how is Trump related to French-style revolutionaryism? Is he... What he's he's in the way of the reign of terror, right? I mean, is that it? So you're right, right. So Trump, in both his energy and his presentation, basically just Trump's trolling actually captures tactics that the left used to use more commonly when their power was not as undisputed as it is now in government, media, and academia. So in the 1960s, you could still find left-wing comedians that were funny. Lenny Bruce is horrendously vulgar, but he was funny. George Carlin, also very vulgar, but could make funny observations. 
you can tell if someone's in power because he no longer has any kind of humor or self-reflection. Trump can actually be funny. And part of the reason he's funny is because he's not in power. Hmm. So what do you make of the accusation, which I heard a week ago, that he is a, uh, a tyrant in the making who has so much power uh, pulled to himself that if, if we don't vote him out right now, mm. even though I've never, ever voted Republican in my, or Democrat in my life, the person mm-hmm. says, we mm-hmm. have to do it now or the Republic's over and he's the threat to the Republic. Okay. I heard well, that. I heard I that think... from from a thinking person, right? And yeah, I, I'm like, I'm like sitting person. there flabbergasted. I'm like, I don't even know, but I know this person is not insane, right. right? They have a different narrative. Right. Totally different narrative. So their narrative assumes that there's some kind of continuity between 1776 or 1787 and 2020. And we've said time and again, there really isn't. We're on at least our third, maybe our fourth or fifth version of this republic as far as what is actually operative. So if they think that it's the republic, capital R, and we have to defend our institutions, democracy dies in darkness, thank you, Washington Post, Jeff Bezos. Yeah, right. They think that's all true. Then why is the Supreme Court so desperately important? Hmm. Because if you read the Constitution, they're not even real clear on how the Supreme Court is even supposed to exist. Or should they have a really big, important building or sit there as a kind of Sanhedrin governing everything finally that happens in the United States? So if, if you think this is all somehow coherent, that's the problem. I really don't care whether or not you vote for Trump, but I do have a problem if you think that somehow America is a coherent, functioning political entity. That's a really interesting thing. So at what point in my life as a growing uh, cog – trained to fit in the grand machine of Americana, uh, at what point in my life did I start to realize the story I was told about where we came from and the story I was living didn't seem to make sense? Like there had to be some transitionary things that they didn't tell me about. And the Bay of Pigs was just the tip of that iceberg. I mean, come on, (laughs) right? But I know they're like, the Bay of Pigs, don't worry about it. I'm like, then I probably should, shouldn't I, huh? I was old enough to start, (laughs) yeah, you know, 17. But but what, what assets do you have? You're shoved off into the education system, just going to make you a worker, blah, blah, blah. I want to come back to, though, because that's that's just me opining, the trolling tactics that Trump picked up on. Mm -hmm. That reminds me of something that my favorite guy to follow for no good reason other than his math is greater than mine is Nassim Tlaib. Uh, Trump's language is his skill, is what he Mm -hmm. says. And this is in spite of the fact that Ben Shapiro keeps saying, he steps on rakes, he steps on rakes. It's like, and then you got the people who are like, he's doing it on purpose. And then you got us in the middle. What is it? He's mm-hmm. using these tactics. It's not about like saying the right thing, I think, but it's a little more in the Saul Alinsky direction, if I can throw that out yeah. there. But I want to I want to push in that, that name of Saul Alinsky, conspiracy mm-hmm. theory, rules for radicals. I mean, did this guy actually exist? Should we actually worry about the impact he had on this entire conversation and why politics is like this today? Because yeah. that seems to be a conversation I've never heard ever, ever. Ever. Okay, so I, I think that people get outraged at Trump either earnestly or I don't actually think everyone that gets outraged about he's destroying our institutions and our, our democratic norms, etc. I don't think they're all that stupid. I think they know what they're doing. And they're just trying to gin up outrage among people that are not bright enough to understand what the game is. What Trump understands is that when you have a system that is broken, or an assembly, or a group, a polity, the American voter 
you know, elect the, the American electorate that is severely and probably irretrievably divided, right? Hmm. So when people talk about, oh, I just want to go back to the good old days, not only is that a stupid understanding of what happened and how bitter American politics was in the past. Hmm. It's also like, look, America was extremely homogeneous in 1951 compared to today in every way you can think of, not only racially. And therefore, you're not going to go back to a time when we all had tons of stuff in common and had just fought a war together. That's over. Hmm. We're, not, we're not going back to a draft. Our military can't afford it. It's not happening. So Trump understands how fractured America is and when a group is fractured, whether you're talking to five people or 500 million, who knows how many people actually live inside the borders of the United States? I mean, who knows? Hmm. <laughs> when you're talking to a group that big, you are not being serious and playing by the rules would be the dumbest thing you could do, because that would mean that you are accepting the norms that your enemies are hanging over your head hmm. and then trying to obey those rules, right? If the hall monitor is malicious and just hates your guts for no reason. You just need to start ignoring the hall monitor. And part of the outrage at Trump, especially from the media, which they're kind of dumb enough to keep doing because it gives him more coverage, yeah, right. is that they, they go along with it and they say, oh, look what he said. And then they repeat what he said. So recently, I think today or yesterday, he tweeted, you know, COVID-19, we're getting used to it, just like the flu. There's always been a shot for the flu. Still thousands of people die every year. We'll get used to it. We're not going to shut everything down. It's going to be fine. And Twitter banned that. So that there's stuff about power we can talk about later. But the outrage, like the dumbest thing they could have done was to ban yeah, the tweet. Now everyone's going to hear about it. Now yes. people on, on Twitter are going to yeah. hear about it. Now, why yeah. is it that even big media doesn't get big, big media? People who talk about big media don't get big media. There is – it's a proverb. It's a, a saying, right, that no publicity is bad publicity. Right. And like there's a point at which they're stringing you up and crucifying you and you might say, well, maybe I should have stayed home, right? Maybe right. I shouldn't have come out of the house. But right. uh, if you are talking about I want to get heard, I want to get my message out, yeah, yeah, it doesn't matter who's covering you. You take it. You take it. Own it. Right, right? Right, right. Oh, yeah. Of course right. I'm like that. Yeah, I'm like that. I talk about it somewhere so other people come and listen to what you're saying. <laughs> and he is – he's absolutely been the king of that. What right. I want to push on again, and, mm -hmm. and I hope it wasn't it wasn't uh, too off the cuff though, is you know the, the Saul Alinsky yeah. Rules for Radicals mm -hmm. tactical direction that yeah. is a leftist – I think tactic this observable and you can see it historically being put into place. Does that tie into this French revolutionary thinking? Uh, how would that, how would you tie those together? And okay. how does that have to do with what Trump is doing now? Is he, is he basically finally on the right adopting rules for radicals? Yeah. So if you read Saul Alinsky's rules for radicals, what you understand is that the radical part of that is the least important part. Alinsky has simply understood something that was prophesied darkly even in ancient Greece, about the nature of democracy. That is that it's a degenerate form of government because there is no way to reasonably govern such a large number of men who can offer their opinions, even if it's just a ballot in November. Right. And so once that degenerates, it's going to generally become something like an oligarchy controlled by money, which is in fact what happens to ancient Athens. And then it kind of rots from the inside out, right? So Athens gains immense political power and then rots from the inside out. Just, just Alinsky, real fast, by, by, oligarchy, yeah. by oligarchy controlled by money, you mean like Spectre. Like that's that's literally what you mean. And that's the James Bond reference. So, uh, <laughs> so it, 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 a, a small group yeah. 
who control the money at the top, right? Illuminati, yeah. I don't care. Illuminati, whatever. But like what you just said is ancient Athens in microcosm, that's what happens because the only way to manage democracy is like that at the end of the day. Right. Right, yeah? right, right, right. Yeah. And it doesn't even, it's not even, I mean, even late the Occupy Wall Street stuff from almost a decade ago now, you know, the, the 1%, we're not even talking the 1% because mm-hmm. you could run a profitable small business and, and be in that, in that tax bracket. Um, we're talking about a couple hundred people who with their money are able to control things. Alinsky understood that. And he was living in a one party state that is Chicago. It's been a one party state for a very long time. But that one party, which was was and still is the Democratic Party at the time, as controlled by Richard J. Daley, great book, The Mayor by Mike Royko, best Chicago book, best, I think, American politics book. How does it work? How do they get stuff done? That that party was not really in favor of the groups that Alinsky was putting together in both different coalitions of white ethnics and then also blacks. And Alinsky was putting that together and along with leadership from the University of Chicago, which had moved from being sort of WASP progressive to being sort of post-WASP leftist, very directly, kind of antithetical to more general American values in a way that, you know, Teddy Roosevelt and, and his ilk were not. And so Alinsky knew that he had something new that had no power. So he understood this thing is already fractured, right? Mm-hmm. And Alinsky was smart enough, and I don't say this, I say this to his credit as far as his prudence, not, not as to his morality or, or any of his views, but he was smart enough to realize I can't operate by the rules my enemies have already constructed. Right. So he, so so he I, invented a yeah. form of, of uh, virtual terrorism, right? Uh, philosophical or, or uh, propagandist terrorism. Because that's what uh, terrorism. I'm just applying like military thought here. Terrorism is a military tactic for when you don't have power to do a ground war. You yeah. can't actually fight, right? So you got to do something else, and yeah. that's what he was. You're saying the evil genius enough genius to see right. and write a book about that. Frankly, you don't have to agree with him to to even learn right. this from right. him. And I'd advocate uh, anybody with a good cause might want to understand how to communicate in the white noise this way. If you if you transfer his rules into military history, they would be like prosecuting a series of small wars and then waiting for outside intervention, which he received through outside cash infusions, um, among other things. But he's the reason, for instance, that members of the the actually directly terroristic Weather Underground could survive and flourish in Chicago. He's also the reason that Barack Obama is something at all in the world. And so he's a very important man. And he understood what, you know, the Americans understood in the American Revolution, which is we're not going to beat these people head on. This is an empire. They have way more resources than we do. We're going to wear them down and run from them. And someone will help us. And for the Americans, that was the French. And for Alinsky and his ilk, that was outside cash infusions from all sorts of sources on the left. But so there's a lot of moving parts. But basically, he understood, I, I can't fight climactic battles on my enemy's terms. I will be obliterated. Man, it's got to be an amazing historical fiction just waiting. You know, the, the Swamp Fox of Chicago, uh, you know, Saul Alinsky's yeah, life right. and history. Uh, what an interesting dystopic reality. Cool. Thank you for tying that knot up a little bit. How then, how much did Alinsky foresee the need to adopt technology as part of this approach? I'm sure he did, given uh, the way he viewed the press, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think that the, the nature of media has not, 
actually drastically changed. I think its pace has changed. Right. So that's why Alinsky is still valuable, because even though the news cycle is so much faster, even in completely informal groupings, extended families, friendship groups, you, you have a news cycle because of social media now within those groups. Even though it's faster, the realities are the same, which is publicity is generally good as long as you can spin it. And so any publicity is finally good as long as you know how to spin it. Mm-hmm. And that, that means that you're doing narrative control. And that's exactly what Trump knows how to do. I'm writing this down because it's so genius. So I need you to keep talking about anything. Talk about then <laughs> uniting money and tech. Since that's your note, that's your actual bullet point. What, uniting yeah. money and tech. I mean, I, I'm also, I could say, well, geez, if I had the money to buy the tech and airtime, I could make people think just about anything I wanted. Right. Man, exactly. yeah. it's, just, it's just so easy, right? But but the only ones that are doing this now are those who saw it way ahead of time, yeah. way ahead of time. Yeah, and I, and I think that one of the central insights of the left as it developed after the 1960s, especially in the United States and especially in California, but really throughout the developed world, was to understand that being an authority would be advantageous to them. So this idea that being on the left means being in rebellion finally becomes, it's always a pose. You know, we're, we're fighting for Black Lives Matter. Okay, that's great. Uh, here comes a billion dollars from Citibank. One of my favorite Twitter accounts is Woke Capital because he, he just chronicles day after day, basically just reposting content from corporate accounts about which oppressed you know, victim class that corporation is favoring or promoting or advertising with. And so I think the left has really understood the power of money. Everybody gets that, but money harnessed to tech. Because I I think something that people often don't think about, because we think, I think in some ways too demographically and probably not spiritually enough, is the nature of someone's soul when he believes whatever he is told to believe. I don't think that the left in the United States, especially the growth among the demographic that has become most radicalized in the past five years, which are white leftists, I don't think, I don't think white leftists are different from me who am white, but not a leftist necessarily in every single life experience or their love of pumpkin spice things. Okay. That might be general to all white people throughout the United States. I, I don't know. Just a guess. Right. But I think that the difference there is the degree of socialization they have. That is that they do believe the things that are put in front of their eyes. And what has increased not only since 2015, but really since the advent of the smartphone is the amount of stuff that is put in front of your eyes all the time. I mean, people spending most of their day on the internet really functionally. And because of that, it's much easier to change people much more rapidly. So I think that in our society, I, don't, I can't say this about 18th century France, but in our society, one's politics are largely a function of one's socialization. That is, if I'm talking to somebody and he says, you know, I'm really concerned about the destruction of the environment, I don't categorize that person as leftist or rightist, okay? I'm gonna wait to see what he means by that. Or I'm really concerned about the poor. I'm not, again, I'm not going to categorize that because what is actually politically important is whether he means I'm going to go feed the homeless or I'm going to protect old growth forest in my, you know, in the state that I live in. 
I can totally agree with both those things. Mm. But if he begins to spout talking points or didn't know the word transsexual or genderqueer five years ago, and now like has a whole identity built around those things, then I know that he's over socialized. That is everything that comes out of the screen immediately becomes a part of his soul. Why do you use socialized to say that? Why is that the word you picked? Because I, I think something that has gone away with the advent of the smartphone is mental quiet. Yes. In the same sense that when I used to get home from school and I went to full disclosure, I went to daycare and public school. So, you know, anybody who has an objection to this has nothing on me. Lasky. I was fully, I get it. I get it. I yeah, was Lasky. fully socialized the way I was supposed to be according to 1990s orthodoxy. But you, you didn't, you didn't have the Soma yet, you know, no. they, they had to develop but, the, the, the brain sucking drug right. and put you on it first. I'm not kidding. Right. ADD, no, you, I mean, you, you were, right. you were young enough to get it. They just didn't put it on you. Apparently. Right. Right. But when I would get <laughs> home from school, or even on the bus on the way home from school, I used to like to sit by myself just because I had been with other people hmm. for like eight straight hours. And it's just like, no, like I need to think thoughts on my own and look at the world on my own. With smartphones, I can't do that ever. A hmm. lot of people don't have the willpower yeah. to do that ever. Yeah, yeah. So we're, uh mindfulness practice really is what opened my eyes to that one and how much noise was not getting processed and i didn't right. you know it's just it's just coming in right and, yeah. and that yeah. to think that humans need downtime that's not sleep yep. to rightfully process or the alternative is that confirmation bias wins uh, and what that means and you can study this go look it up on google it'll be easy to read up on wikipedia uh, but but what that means is that you basically believe what whatever was shouted at you the loudest the most recently and you're changing all the time without an awareness of that and and if that's all you got then because you have no reflection yeah, you, you can change people's minds with TV in a couple of years. I mean, a, a minimum, I would think. I, I'm watching people change their minds about stuff real fast these days. Right. I'm up, I, Honestly, Adam, I'm wondering how much good portions of, of the American populace really don't use language now on the way that we maybe think of language the last 500 years, that they have sort of a, a devolved pigeon language that is made up more and more of slogans uh, than it is yeah. of, of actual words that can be formed into ideas. And I'm going to push back into then money sure. and tech when they unite. I think that is in some ways maybe best described as the slogan or the brand. Uh, there is so a brand can only really exist when money and tech unite. Now, maybe that's too big of an equation. I'm making too many jumps there, but it's worth kind of pondering that because uh, what results from all of these endeavors to use money and tech to move people um, brand influencer slogan that's what that's what it comes right up. and i and i think that you see this in people honestly regardless of their ideological or religious convictions because everything that they do or everything that they are not only needs to be like posted somewhere but it but it has to have a certain meaning mm -hmm. right i can't just buy a jacket i have to buy this jacket because it's it's prestigious for whatever reason or it reflects the fact that i'm a real 100% true blue American or that I'm, you know, a, a communist or whatever, whatever, whatever I am, everything that I do becomes the result of choice. Nothing in life now is given. It, it's all technologized in the sense that it's all worked upon and it has to be chosen. The identity has to be chosen. Hmm. Um, nothing is a given 
not my hair color, nothing. And yet that's what brings you the uh, the anxiety, uh, the overwhelm. Right. Right. Uh, you know, because it, especially if you believe in good and evil in any way, because you're going to believe that some of these choices are wrong, right? Like, like it's you can actually mess this thing up. And so, both of I, I wrote down the word hyper twice now. So you're you're talking about socialized as like the TV has socialized you. If you if you watch the TV and just believe it, it says you've been socialized. I'm going to mm-hmm. say, why don't we call that hyper socialized? And that's what the notification syndrome does. It, it, you're, you are so hyper socialized that you are unable to really slow down and deal with any face to face society. You, you haven't had time right. to process. Right. As opposed to being, we really want humans who are socialized, like they can see another person in front of them. Be aware that they're a human, like kind of yeah. figure out who they are, right? They're not just a cog, they're not just a, a robot. Um, right. To me, that would be what socializing is. I don't know. We're just messing with language here. But I also wrote down that word hyper. As you're talking about all these you know, brand, I brought that up, but then how you, you took that into people's choices to buy things and uh, how they it matters to you, you know, I've, I experienced this myself and it's so depressing. You know, I, I write something, I draw something and it's like, well, I should put that on Instagram. I really need to put it on Instagram. Why? Why do I need to? Well, because people benefit from it. And frankly, we're doing that here too. We're doing this right. because people benefit yeah. from it. So this, it's not like it's all evil, but the hyper symbolism, the fact that everything I do has to be somehow a symbol of my identity. Right. You mean that's not normal? Like that's just not just how humans always have been, Adam? Is this not the normal experience of life? Right. And, 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 and it, I say it, it that way to mock but also to struggle because when you have been hypersocialized, it's very hard to believe there is any other option but what you've experienced because the loud has been so loud. It's all you know. Well, and I, I think people do honestly forget what they were like. Um, let alone what human society was like when, you know, I, I had to set an appointment and then be there at that time because I had no way to be in touch with that person. I mean, this is, we're doing like real 1996 hours right now. I mean, it's not that long ago. Right, right, right. I know it. Pagers, man. I was all about the pager. I want one of those. Then you can find Um, me and stuff. But I think, I think on an even deeper level, things like memory, or the capacity to dream, these kinds of things are severely affected by Mm. the amount of content you're consuming, the pace at which you're consuming it, uh, the time of day you're consuming it. And so it becomes harder and harder and harder to be what I still want to maintain for lots of reasons is natural for human beings, which involves significant amounts of quiet and time for reflection I think a lot of religions, pretty much anything worth its salt, it become impossible when the person has no time for reflection. Right. So reflection, contemplation, meditation, the inner life, not even really all religions, but even uh, secularists who, who do the mindfulness thing. Yeah. yeah. They kind of understand that the human organism, uh, let's just say breath and body, if nothing else, uh, yeah. is a chemical thinking tank or seems to be. And that, that defrag time is, is pretty key. Yeah. Um, you know, if you know your computer lingo there, uh, you, you have to be able to let the thoughts that all went in out of order, put themselves somehow back in order. Uh, this can involve conversation with a trusted source. This can kind of involve journaling, it, 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 but 
reflection, right? That mm-hmm. somehow, and so you're, you're positing, you know, that your religion can't really survive whatever it is if you remove reflection from it. Um, but really, maybe more pertinent to the, the immediate conversation then is, no, how does a civilization survive without reflection? Can it? Uh, it? Must it not instead become barbarism that will be trumped by some other civilization that rises to re- replace it? Because right. I think people desire okay, it, good order, even if they don't know how to make it. They'll want it. They'll, they'll take it when someone else brings it. And when you think civilization, don't think a certain level or a certain amount or a certain saturation of specific technologies. No. So if if we have nothing left except what Silicon Valley allows us to have, that can still be barbarian even if I have the latest iPhone because it means that I am unable to build a civitas, a city, a group, a polity, what is communal because I can't articulate myself. I don't have my own thoughts. I don't even meet physical people because we're in lockdown perpetually if I live in San Francisco, literally, actually. And so something can have a certain amount of splendor or grandeur or achievement and still be barbarian. Uh, What differentiates a barbarian from a civilized man is that a civilized man has something in common which he has inherited, the civitas, from his forefathers. I'm speaking in Roman terms here, Greek terms. Uh, that's where our civilization comes from. And having inherited it from his forefathers who are before him in things like paintings and statues throughout the city, this is also why the church has always had as much art as it historically has had. Seeing those things, he understands that his role in life is to pass them on to those who come after him. That's a fundamentally different view than I'm a consumer making choices. I may even be somebody who's really into classical art or really into Eastern Orthodoxy or really into something else that would be called trad. It doesn't matter as long as my soul is oriented towards those things as a consumer rather than as an inheritor and a progenitor. So what is at the, what is at the basis of part of our political struggle is a view and understanding of humankind as a consumer that can be manipulated and changed, maybe even changed from a woman to a man, versus humankind as something essentially given, and you need to discover in your life those things that are given to find out who you truly are. And really describing there the Republican-Democrat distinction, I think, uh, the Republican is still trying to pass forward the past, particularly in the Constitution itself, and it would seem that the Democrat as a party is trying to choose the preferable future, whatever that might be, yeah. uh, regardless of the past. And I, I, that, not only I, uh, ideology slash identification, but then, yeah. yeah, one of those I would say is probably more open to manipulation by new media. It just kind of seems right. like right. One of them, sure. no matter how you take it, one of them is going to be, right? Okay. But I, I think that the left-right paradigm, and I'm not saying this as sort of like a, a, centri- a big brain centrist or something stupid, right? I'm saying the left-right paradigm is a problem in and of itself because I'm not arguing that we need to stop development here or right. that we need to go right. back to there. I'm saying that right now in the present, we actually are, are a certain way and our ignorance of that or our rebellion against that way that we are, that men are, that women are, that militaries are, that whatever is, our rebellion against nature is the problem. Yeah. That's why when I brought up, I brought up, first of all, to talk about, I don't assume left or right. I talked about the environment, quote, the environment, such a sterile word. 
nature, the given things, the existence of things that are not human, the preservation of that is to me, obviously, quote, conservative, should be, quote, right wing, because the right wing is should be arguing, has been since the French Revolution, arguing in favor of given things, things that human beings did not make, things that are not dependent upon technology for their existence any more than the fact that I'm a man is dependent upon technology. Well, and this is really where even knowledge starts, right? So that the only way we can even communicate, you and I, is we begin with given things. Uh, mm -hmm. Words in a language generally are supposed to be those given things, but miscommunication happens because they're not, right? And, yeah. and so you got to figure out what is the, the given thing, the, the real thing, the first principle would be kind of the more secular way I hear, I think, uh, this, this conversation goes, is that, that search for first principles. And you're, you're using nature as a word to summarize those things which actually are ultimate first principles that cannot be removed. They will remain. Natural laws is maybe a little bit connected to that too. And so what you're advocating though is that we've lost the ability to even believe such a thing exists. Right. Right? Exactly. That there yeah. is such a thing as yeah. a – well, let me, let me, I'm going to, I'm going to left turn, but not really. We're coming back okay. to this very thought, but I remember, I think it's at the front of Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, uh, a book that we don't really have to get into the Christianity of, but he's kind of at pains to talk about the existence of a higher power early on. And I think he chooses the word Tao, T-A-O, um, from, from Buddhist tradition or, or Hindu tradition, the Tao as a, a universal belief that there's something. Yeah. Right. Like you kind of need that much. And, right. and you're contending that we have a political, slash economic movement that's founded on there is not something. Yes? Exactly. Yes, exactly. Because, yeah, so the Sanskrit word is dharma. The, the concept exists in practically any religious slash philosophical, I don't really recognize a distinction between those things, movement that there is something given. And so, for instance, you know, Greek philosophers, early, the earliest Greek philosophers are going to debate, what is that given primal thing? Is it fire? Is it water? You know, so they're, they're not debating that there is a given thing that governs all other things. So in that regard, politics is finally a discussion of alignment with those given things, hmm. right? So if my city is founded uh, next to a seacoast, uh, my political problems will be alignment with our geographic situation because my city is there and not way up in the mountains far away from the ocean. My, my struggle as a man is to align myself with what I have been given in nature and to develop that to the greatest potential. It's not a struggle of progress, certainly not towards some unknown goal. The, the, the discovery of what is already there and a greater grasp of its significance. What does it mean that I have a father? What does it mean that rain comes down from the sky and I eat because that happens? That's a very different understanding of human life and thus of politics than saying, how do I make my mother become my father? Or how do I make it rain where rain never happens? That's a fundamentally different way of thinking about being human. And I think part of the bitterness of American politics is that because of our levels of socialization, like you said, people have no idea that there's ever been anything else, right? Mm -hmm. What is artificial has become for them second nature. And they're not even aware of, nor would admit the existence of a first nature that is deeper and truer. And that's the struggle that my own person journey, like the last couple of years hit. When I, when I, I, I hit an electricity wall. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know what else to call it. You know, a, a media wall, an absorbing of input for entertainment purposes wall. And it started by amazingly after loving fiction my whole life, always reading fiction to go to bed, just not being able to pick up any fiction book, even my favorites. I'd pick up, read four or five sentences and just meh, meh. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know, mm-hmm. and, and and it trickled. It hit video games finally. Um, they they went the <laughs> by side movies. I just I just don't want to be entertained at all. Like yeah, whatever, right. just don't entertain right. me. And and it's so weird. Like that's like that. And I I think again, I just need some time away. <laughs> you know, a little silence to reflect on forty two years of Yogi Bear and X-Men and He-Man into George Bush and Dukakis and Nickelodeon and get out the vote. I mean, just, it just, it, it never yeah, ends. Right. It never yeah. ends. And, and what I've loved about, again, it started a little with mindfulness, but uh, you're, what you're talking about is just reflection, believing that the human mind body needs space. What's been so wonderful to see is as I pulled back from the entertainment stuff, um, even though I didn't miss it, I certainly didn't miss it. Um, and I, I hope to find a happy medium somewhere, the presence that's around me, the given thing that's around me has mm-hmm. been something I've been able to just, I don't know if enjoy is the right word because that's like a fun related <laughs> word, right? Um, but feel, yeah. feel yeah. or, or right. be in. Like uh, and right. my wife said to me this this summer, she's like, you know what? It's, it's summer. Maybe we should just enjoy hot even though it doesn't feel good. And I didn't quite do it every day, <laughs> but I took her up on it. You know, I went outside. Yeah. I just sat in yeah. the hot. I was in the shade. I just sat in the hot. Well, this is summer. This is what summer is. The world makes summer. How interesting, you know? And just be in something different. And I think that's yeah. kind of what you're getting at here, right? Yeah. And that, and that, the. But my question, Adam, is is this? I mean, COVID was the final thing that really knocked me out of it. I was forced into three weeks of actually reflecting, and I went, "I'm never letting go of this." There are people that don't have a choice <laughs> and would like to be able to hold on to this. Right. Can we just rely on COVID though to have done enough? Uh, yeah, I think things are going to ramp back up again. I think it's going to be a struggle for me to maintain in my own life some level of a reflection because once the narrative is something other than Trump derangement syndrome, I'll probably start believing things again at some point, right? And and, and thinking the narrative outside actually has some impact on me. I don't know. I, I'm asking the question, how do we knock people out of that gravitational force? Uh, did COVID already do it for a lot of people? Uh, I don't know. Yeah. I think COVID has done it for some people in the sense that COVID has revealed the non-essential nature of most of their daily activity, maybe their entire job. I don't say that for people that lost a job at which they were producing something or being of value, but it has revealed how non-essential so many parts of life are, how people don't really know their kids. um, They don't really know their spouse. And one of the, I think, givens of life is that all the things that we are taught to chase after, um, the things that are very powerful, like money, those things can always increase. They can also decrease. Time, and especially time with people, is something that really only ever decreases. I have less time with my wife as you're listening to this than I do as I'm recording this, and certainly than I will have with her in two years if we're both still alive. So when you think about life that way, you realize that you know no one actually ever dies thinking of himself as, boy, I wish I had spent more time you know, seeing HR about my retirement plan. No one ever thinks that. And the reason that no one ever thinks that is because human beings actually are a certain way. They're designed for family. They're designed to prize significance. They're designed actually to have 
something significant about their interior life. And because our socioeconomic setup basically treats us as consumers, which means it treats us as basically just thinking stomachs, thinking organs of consumption, its whole way of making you think about yourself is thinking, how can I consume more or consume something different or consume something more socially prestigious? It never teaches you how to cultivate a life that you would actually be interested in having and reflecting on the day that you die. Strangely, Tim Ferriss did that for me a little bit. Made me say, why am I doing what am I doing? Why am I chasing <laughs> right. these things? Why am I yeah. spinning my wheels? Why do I think the email matters so much? Uh, so yeah. it, it, it's not – you said earlier you don't distinguish religion and philosophy. And I think that's maybe an important thing to come back to at a show at some point uh, just to understand that everyone's going to answer the question why somehow, yeah. someone. Right. Yep. Um, and I, I just want to throw a hat tip. The fact you described us as being uh, controlled – what would you call us? Thinking stomachs. Um, yeah. But I, I don't think thinking is correct the right word. It's, it's pleasure-seeking stomachs <laughs> is, is really what yeah. we are. And yeah. that's what they Impulsive treat us like. Stomachs. That's what they yeah, treat right. us like. And that's how yeah. if you study the science of the use of color and music and all this other stuff to get you to buy things, that's actually what's happening. Like they, they are manipulating you. Um, and even if you know it, it doesn't always work to, to know it to stop it. And I say this when right. I read about the stuff. It's like, oh, I'm feeling it happen right now and I'm still buying it. Look at this. You know, it, so, so there's that. But I want to push back on uh, the time thing. Yeah. Not push back in a bad way, in a good way. Uh, there's a really, really worthwhile blog post for anybody in the world to, to go look at called The Tail End. Uh, it's at Wait But Why. And if you put those in, you'll find it. And it just has to do with how much of your life with humans you love is over by the time you're 18. Hmm. If you look at the actual amount of time you get with your folks. Like by the time you're 18, you only get like 3% more. I forget what the number is. He does it for you. It's, but yeah. it's like it's like gone, right? And so then right. to start looking at all of your relationships that way, it's, it's worth pondering a little bit here. Uh, is time or money more valuable? Time is money, right? No. No. Maybe once, right? Uh, now time is, is far more valuable. Money is is what I would want to use to buy time. Uh, and that, that thinking, right. um, I think that's kind of what you're getting at here. Now yeah. – Feel free to respond to that. Can we can we push this toward our our grander meta narrative, our great preferred story that we want everyone to believe, so we can come to power and therefore put <laughs> Cleveland and Pittsburgh somehow under our 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 guise or our our I don't know yeah mythology. I can, yeah, I can get there. I think that when you think of time and of what comes at its end in each person's life, which is death, that means that you're fundamentally think about yourself and other human beings as defined. You have limits. You're not limitless. It's not limitless, quote, progress. It's not limitless, quote, growth. And I think one of the more profound insights of the 20th century was made by Martin Heidegger, a German philosopher, and I therefore- I hate that guy. I hate that guy. Okay, that's fine. <laughs> uh, I, don't, I don't know all... if I hate him. I just don't like what he says, but say, uh, you're okay, going to say so something what, good. What he said was that that there was finally not much of a distinction between the United States and the Soviet Union hmm. because both countries were ideologically committed to an understanding of the human being as a basically economic animal. Yeah. Not defined by time, not defined by death, not defined as Heidegger does human beings by being uh, or becoming, but by what they consume. And so the, the roots to the optimal consumption are going to be different as marked out by Marxism on the one hand or capitalist democracies on the other. But finally, the end goal is the same. 
how do I get stuff in a pleasing way? Right. And so when you think about it that way, you realize that I believe that the United States, and uh, uh, we'll use the examples of Cleveland and Pittsburgh in a second, the United States is essentially one ongoing boomtown because it is it has been devoted to the maximization of production, but especially of consumption for a very long time. Mm-hmm. It may have been baked in from the beginning. I don't really want to adjudicate that. I'm not sure it's true for everybody, but it certainly has been the case in the 20th century. And I think I think Heidegger made a profound remark in observing that the two major victors, obviously in the Second World War, were fundamentally united in their vision of being human. And therefore the fight was really about which road we're gonna take, but we both agree we're going to the same place. Which I find interesting. Here's what that makes me want to say is that that means Marx is right no matter what. That capitalism is just the other side of Marxism because it's Marx's definition of a human that ultimately is what's winning, whether you agree with what he says you should do because of that. Right. Right. It's so so we're all Marxists. I hate that idea, but I well, think it's I think it's true I, I, in the way you just said it at least. Yeah, and I and I think it explains why we have things like what woke capital is chronicling on Twitter because the reason that that exists is because finally big business doesn't have and I'm not so I'm not talking about like is market exchange okay? What kind of currency standard should we have? I'm not talking about what are relatively speaking minutia. We're talking about the philosophy of economics. And in that guise, the idea that big business is trying to maximize consumption um, and spread it to as many people as possible is fundamentally the same understanding of a human being as saying, you know, Marx's vision in the Communist Manifesto of I'm going to fish, I'm going to work a little bit, I'm going to fish a little bit, I'm going to hang out a little bit. And on the way, there's going to be all these stages, including industrial capital for Marx. But I'm going to try to get there, and I'm going to get there by maximizing pleasure. I think that the modern left differs widely from Marx in being very interested in gender and race and stuff. But what it's doing there is that I think it's insightful within its own, I don't agree with it, but it's insightful in extending the realms of life that are now subject to progress, choice, and also demonization. So if Marx has progress and choice and demonization within the economic realm, the new left, especially the post-1960s left, is able to extend that critique of what appears as natural or given way beyond economics to every realm of life. So you've got progress means this in terms of gender or sexuality. Choice means this. Now you have more choices. Uh, You can be any one of 52 genders. And then demonization, well, it was the bourgeoisie, but now it's whites or now it's males or now it's Christians or whoever. And so the same process just plays out throughout life instead of exclusively inside economics it's, it's whoever and and it's going to continue to fragment because it's, it's also then it's blacks because while i do not think white racism is about to take over the whole civilization i don't think it's gone either in fact i heard that a guy i don't know if he was the kkk or other but major white nationalist leader out there came out in favor of biden's uh, presidency because he's pro-abortion and uh, and so he wanted to make sure that uh his his party understood that uh the fact being again that we are in an era not of unification, but of desynchronization. That this has been amplified by COVID. 
that time and money's relationship to space and time has also been shifting in all of this. And I would contend this is good for humanity because the unnatural train we've been on is one that's going yeah. to just undo itself. Because yeah. our point, I think, as philosophers, Christians first, but philosophers second, and still just thinking this is philosophy, that if the things are in fact given things and you try to undo them, then all you undo is yourself. And if I'm standing next to you, I might fall in. And so, you know, we, we care about these things because once you push certain buttons, the, the bomb goes off. Yeah. 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 And there, and there, and there is no, there is no coming back from things like this. So the reason that uh, I mentioned Cleveland and Pittsburgh is because they are examples of something that used to be Silicon Valley, the Rust um, Belt, incredibly high investment, incredible economic growth, fortunes being made overnight. This all happened there because of a conglomeration of oil extraction and railroad technology and, and metallurgy, especially in Pittsburgh. And after that was all done happening, after capital did not have a use for those places anymore, they became, from the 1970s onward, uh, the Rust Belt. I would contend that those kinds of places are much more valuable than a place that largely produces apps and social monitoring, that it was much more valuable to produce furnaces and steam locomotives and you know all kinds of things, our own bridges in the United States rather than relying on others to make them in unreliable ways and ourselves just producing, you know, uh, Robinhood, you know, the app that lets you essentially just gamble on the stock market um, <laughs> for what that's worth in case there wasn't Got to use your privilege for something. <laughs> right, right. I have been underutilizing my white privilege, it, it seems. But what happened with those places is what will happen to any place that capital uses. And I, I would contend that Cleveland and Pittsburgh can stand as symbols to what happens to people when they are used by capital. There is a rush of pleasure in acquisition and a rush of excitement and a sense of dynamism and urgency. Once you are no longer useful to that system of investment, you will fall by the wayside. And this happens in within the microcosm of, I talked about whaling last time. Uh, it happened to the guys that were on the ships uh, where there was a 6% chance that you just, nobody would come back. <laughs> that doesn't hurt the investor. That hurts the guy that will never come back. But it has happened to cities. It's happened in the case of the Rust Belt to entire regions of the country. And it will happen also to Silicon Valley if if the present state of California isn't enough it's, of a- It's already happened. San Francisco, it's yeah. already happened. Right. What's happening? San Francisco right. is a disaster. Because this idea of like a boom town of immense growth, of ongoing growth or progress is essentially unnatural. There's always change and growth in natural systems, whether you're talking about a family or a forest, but they don't fundamentally and certainly not exponentially outside of all time horizons that anyone's ever seen before change overnight in the same way that throughout American history, but you can find this in lots of places, Siberia in the 19th century, things come and they're there and then they're gone. So for five years, there was a town here and it was wild and it was open 24 hours and now it's gone. There are so many places in America like that because America is the kind of place where that sort of thing has been happening for a long time. So is there something different between American cities, new world cities, 
and and particularly like the the more new they are then right so mm-hmm. san yeah. francisco's falling apart faster than new york although new york's trying mm-hmm. um uh and you have you have a peninsula issue in both situations and that's kind of where it all happens right and i think manhattan's yeah. still probably doing better than new york yeah. um but it, i haven't looked so i really don't know yeah but the point is again there's there seems to be that the old world cities have better bones and and that's where then you know even looking at pittsburgh and cleveland they're going to have better bones than, say, Silicon Valley will yeah, um, right. or Las Vegas will, you know, right. uh, once once these things pass on. Yeah, I don't know if that's really helpful or, or connects to the point. Um, well, I, I, I think it is because I, I do notice this difference. I mean, I live in the Midwest right now. Um, I'm from the East Coast and there's something about the Midwest where things are either new or they're like ugly. <laughs> they, they don't there. There's very little reluctance. I mean, um, the city where I live, Fort Wayne, I mean, downtown there are all these buildings from like the 1960s, 1970s. I know there were things before that because Fort Wayne was founded in like the 1820s or 30s, but they just knocked it down. And so I think the closer you get to the present, not only is it the case that the people have a different attitude toward preserving the past, Mm. but you even have on a material level, I'm not a materialist, but on a material level, you just have decreasing standards in construction. So something built in 1982 probably simply is not as solid as something built in 1782. So what 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 is happening, I think the closer you get to the, the present is the assumption, which I would contend is fundamentally unnatural, that things don't last and everything changes. Hmm. You hear it even in forms of pop culture that are ostensibly rightist or quote conservative because you get it in country music. Well, we don't do things the way daddy did them. Well, why not? Why do you assume that life can't be the way that your father's life was? It's interesting. Just to hop in, I do listen to Florida Georgia Line, and although they sing about drinking too much, they sing about doing what their father did in more than one song and how good it mm-hmm. is. Yeah, and I've, and I've pondered how out of step that is with right. the normal yep. message. Yeah, and that's kind of the only place you're ever going to find it. So you get mixed messages on stuff like this in country music, obviously in well, like along rap, with an embrace of that. like of like you know, well, we're rednecks. You know, so just deal with us. Like there's like there's a there's an approach to being outsiders <laughs> that it takes. And yeah. country has always taken this. I think it's also why uh, rap has done what it is. It's an undercurrent. Right. And even though right now it is the most popular, it still has to pretend to be against the system all the time. It's it's uh, uh, yeah. So there's, there's something <laughs> like free. so much else. Yeah. Yeah. Right. right. Well, like everything you're right. It is the zeitgeist in so many ways. OK. Talking about roots of cities uh, or, or um, uh, the bones of cities mm-hmm. and then the bones of, of the country then, America mm-hmm. as a boomtown itself in sort of a first to industrialize and thus first to get post-industrialized, which isn't necessarily great. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I could see how if I'm sitting over there uh, in Saudi Arabia with a lot of money, I might industrialize differently than the U.S. F- and learn a thing or two about how to avoid, I don't know, all sorts of stuff. I don't know. And I'm just, yeah. I'm suggesting that uh, it's not so good for us to be at the front as we have been of the boomtown thing, because we're going to see our post-industrial civilization with a lot of warts that others might be able to avoid because of watching us. Well, the process is different for countries that have industrialized within the past hundred years. And I would not contend that like Saudi Arabia 
is industrialized in the sense that they're still dependent, especially for engineering expertise on Western countries, on America, on America, on Europe, uh, on Australia to some extent. And that America is no longer an industrialized country in the sense that we were in 1970. Can I can I interrupt real fast yeah. on Saudi though? Because that's yeah. kind of the point about Saudi and Dubai and all this is that they're they're that's a fact they're not going to boomtown. They're not boomtowning. They are within certain corners letting the extremely wealthy get in it right. But yeah. it looks to me like they're trying to play a longer game, and and Americana couldn't by virtue of where it was. Okay, I. I disagree with that because I think that what they're doing is fundamentally extractive rather than productive. Yeah, that's good. And I, I don't that. just yeah. mean that in the sense of oil. I mean that in the sense of how they've structured their economy right. and how much food they import and how many, what percentage of the population is in some make work government job. They're ultimately um, reliant upon a bank account that they're withdrawing from. Right. And yeah. those things wind down. Yeah. If you want to build a lasting civilization, you need some productive basis. I'm saying not only economically, in the sense that you know Russia blows up essentially politically in 1990, 1991, and then has to figure out what it's doing, and it takes a long time. And meanwhile, it gets ransacked. But part of the reason that Russia is still a coherent nation, and certainly stronger politically than it was 20 years ago, is because I think they have both a basis with resources, but they also have a basis, a coherent identity as a people. Hmm. And without that, without that, what I, I have no better word than spiritual, without that spiritual resource, it is very hard to construct a polity, whether it's a republic or a monarchy or whatever the form is. It's very hard to have something without, without, without a first principle more basically in common. Right. A shared common philosophy. I, I, and yeah. I say, I go back to philosophy because earlier when you were talking about it, I wrote down the word spirit because the way you were talking about the use of philosophy is like one has a spirit or a group. We do, we talk about this all the time in sports, you know, get the spirit. It doesn't have to be some sort of like, you know, hyper, hyper juju thing. But, but it is like as a people, when you all breathe with the same words and they drive your brains and your hearts, yeah. well, that, that ties you together. And, however they did it ethnically. I'm not, I don't know. I think there's still a lot of despair over there in the Eastern Bloc. And I, I'm not sure how much Putin is really just controlling the narrative and, and, and all that. But but you're right, though. They have an ethnic identity. And this has kind of been your case with me, at least, in our private conversations, public conversations all along, is that America will never have a shared identity. And this is, this is the experiment. America, I, I mean, I think Russia is multi-ethnic, as, as America is, and as both always have been. And by that, I don't just mean multiracial, I mean multi-ethnic. And so it, 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 I think it is more than shared genetics. Shared genetics are something, it's not nothing. But I mean, the Netherlands is more ethnically homogeneous than Russia. And no one says, oh yes, let me think of a dynamic uh, nation going somewhere in the modern world. Yes, the Netherlands. And the reason for that is that the ethnos, you could say the same of the Germans, the ethnos has either a negative or no sense of itself. And in addition to that, the ethnos has no common narrative or philosophy. That's why, as I've said before, humanities majors do run the world because control of language, of narrative, of philosophy, public discussion, people have souls or spirits, whatever you want to call it. And those Heart. have to be cultivated. Yeah, Big tech is cultivating our souls right now 
other things and other people and other technologies could, yeah. but that's who's doing it right now. I, they're harvesting. They're not yeah. even cultivating. They're harvesting. And, and you, you bring it all home there. Uh, just You didn't get to the phrase, but make America great again uh, is, is very much Trump picking up on and trying to drive home the message that he's for what you're saying. Yeah. 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 And I, I, I think that uh, the left is correct to identify that as largely a call to whites who generally go unspoken in American politics, even though they compose a demographic majority. You don't, you don't say, here's the white unemployment rate. You can say, here's the black one. Here's the Latino one. You never say, here's what I'm doing for whites in West Virginia. And there are lots of complex reasons for that. Some are good, some are bad, whatever. But that appeal, I think, is intrinsically to people. And I don't think it includes me because I've never thought of America as great in my lifetime. Hmm. But it appeals to the electorate, especially the white electorate, that remembers something better. And in that sense, it's a masterful use of language. Golly, I, I'm trying to remember her name now. You know why America's great? Yeah, you did. You must have missed it. It's like Olympics 1984. Uh, gymnastics against I, I Russia. I failed to even be in utero. Yeah, year, against so, Russia yeah. and East Germany. <laughs> we stuck it. We got tens. We won. And then it was like, what, 10 <laughs> years later, the girl's got a friggin' hoppled foot. She's got a, like a bad ankle and she sticks it, gets a nine something, and we do it again. I don't know. That's why I think America's great. We won gymnastics, like two different, you know, Olympics, and I and I watched it. And apparently, you know, and then and then Team USA basketball, uh, dream yeah. team, that was good. And then second time around, watching LeBron, he's just lost his brain. But watching, you know, Dwayne Wade and and uh, Durant play, and they had a real fight against Spain because Spain was a good. So it's the guy. Yeah, US is great. Yeah. You don't watch US sports. That's your problem. <laughs> that's right. I need to I need to consume the approved products, and then I will. I will have him buy now, these can, can I contend that America is great for this reason? Civil liberties are an idea here that has been pursued. And that is maybe not entirely unique, yeah. but as any human being who gets off the boat or is born here, you can believe that's still true and go find a way to build on that for the moment. I, I, this, this, is my, this is my ethnic identity coming out. Since my ancestors have been here on both sides since before the revolution, I don't need America to be ideologically defined. <laughs> I just need it to exist. And I think the idea that America is a set of ideas or experiences or rights or sort of a package of liberties and the decision to drive with the top down on an interstate at a certain speed, those images of America are okay but I think the fundamental idea and part of part of I think the reason that we can't talk about that, that Trump doesn't say, here's the white unemployment rate is because the idea that you simply exist in America seems to be insufficient grounds. This is historically strange, insufficient grounds for discussion of the fact that you should be protected or nurtured or built up. Everything is termed in ideological ways, which is why blacks are appealed to because they're the protected class from the civil rights area. Similarly, for certain minorities, generally not for Asians, et cetera. And that idea that the country is fundamentally ideological always sets you up to be politically fragile because that, you know, okay, well, what does that mean? Like, what does liberty mean? What does freedom mean? What does the constitution mean? mean. So I don't think it's really an accident that America has been ended up being governed in every way 
by people who interpret the meaning of words. That is our judges. Well, yeah, we priests. Were, we, yeah. Were, we were headed there because we don't define Americans simply in terms of, I love this place, not because it was amazing, but because it's mine. Yeah. In the same sense, I love my mother and father because they exist. Right, right, right. And so, you know, and so that concept of existence or of patriotism, love of the patria, because my pater is there and I'm ah. from there and he's from there. When I think of it that way, I don't need America or where I'm from. Like, I don't need, I don't run around saying Pennsylvania is the greatest state ever. I don't need to say that. Or I don't have to say everyone in the world should become a Pennsylvanian. Hmm. I don't need to say that. I love it because that's where I'm from. That's a different idea than saying that it's ideologically mm. defined. And I think we were always headed for this problem as soon as the Supreme Court and the meaning of terms became definitive of the nation. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, but are you sure we weren't always headed there anyway? I mean, are, and this is going to be my no. bias, I suppose. Like, like, yeah. and I said priesthood a moment ago, mm -mm. we live in a country with no official God, right? And yet mm -hmm. we have nine priests in robes who give their holy orders and we all obey right. at the end of the day. Yeah. It, this doesn't seem so different from the rest of history to me, um, yeah. that the God kings must rule somehow, whether it's few or many, and whether they're the actual ones you see or not, it doesn't matter. We end up in the same system. And I guess... I'm still going to say I'd rather be in America in that system right mm -hmm. now than a lot of other places in history. I'm thankful for the one I got. I'm thankful mm -hmm. that this is my country, tis of thee, you know, land where my fathers died. And and so, again, I'm an immigrant class as opposed to a, a, a naturally landed class like yourself. So, uh, so, <laughs> well, so no, no, I, no, know, it's, it's Appalachia. So I'm a little it's not bit landed. It's just there. There. Yeah, just the, there. The, Western, the westernizing yeah. hillbilly hick in me uh, is pretty <laughs> thankful, uh, especially coming from farmer classes that uh, were not good at farming. Uh, and, and being able to move up into the bourgeois intellectual elite of the lower, lower middle class. You and know? make podcasts. And so. make podcasts Here and stuff. Yeah. Right. With like, yeah, yeah. So <laughs> I, I guess I'm, I think there's something great about America, but I think it, I say that because you're right, because it's where I am. And it's, it's yeah. because uh, what I have received and I can see that it's been good for me and I want what has been good for me to be left for my kids. And I want to prune off and get rid of what's been bad for me and been harmful to, to not mm -hmm. just my kids, but for the sake of my neighborhood and everyone else mm -hmm. around me. And I, I think everyone should say that about where they are. That's what would make any place great. That's why you do like your brand or your sports team at the end of the day. But I think you're really right on, though, if we look at, uh, you know, brand America, right. brand USA. Right. Do I need brand USA? I mean, I'm wearing a lot of flags these days, but it's kind of my <laughs> way of saying I'm voting pro-life and I don't have Trump's name on my body. Right. Like, okay. like I, I have a, a November will tell. Yeah. But in my area, there's no Trump signs. There's a few Biden signs, and there are flags like you've never seen before. There are so many American flags flying in people's yards. Somebody across the street put up two flagpoles, front yard, backyard, because they're voting Biden? Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> I'm yeah, just thinking, ah. So, you know, brand America, whatever. We should maybe come back to that one, too. Is there anything we didn't cover, you know? Um, uh, no, I think, I mean, I think for next, I think this leads on into what we'll do next time, which will be to talk about the casino as a paradigm for America, because I think that what you have articulated uh, is definitely, that was the kind of the standard understanding of, you know, why do people come to America, certainly between like the Civil War and let's say the 1960s. But I think that people who understand America as essentially a casino, a place to move to get rich, have always been a really significant current in American history. 
Um, it's certainly how Alexander Hamilton looked at America. And it so it's the no, proof I, you're the lower class, right? It's I I I don't think it's really an accident that Hamilton has become kind of somehow been transmuted into a leftist hero through the musical, and that that's the thing that people are now watching to get knowledge. I mean, homeschoolers who don't vote Democrat are watching to get knowledge about quote the founding fathers because he. I think fundamentally understands America as a business opportunity. Hmm. And that is, that is, I think, deeply harmful and wrong, but, <laughs> but prevalent and important to understand. So I want to talk about that America as a casino. And therefore, uh, I think Las Vegas might be the most American city ever. It probably is. I can never hear the word casino now without thinking about Joe Pesci, Al Pacino, and, oh, how do I lose his name? De Niro. They're all in a movie called Casino. You would think it would be great. It really wasn't that great. It's like three and a half hours long. Is it Val Kilmer in that? Val Kilmer might be better in that. But then I can't think about then that without thinking about De Niro. And I can't think about De Niro without thinking about how he wants to rage against Trump for being everything De Niro ever pretended to be and made all his money acting like. <laughs> right. And I just I, – I, right. I, I feel gaslit again, and I'm going to blame you because we talked about Trump, and it's your fault. All the same, <laughs> uh, two white guys trying to figure out how to live in a world where there is definitely a history of power going on around us. Adam Coons, he teaches at Fort Wayne – no, not Fort Wayne Theological Seminary. Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. You got it. I'm Jonathan Fisk. I'm a pastor up in uh, Rockford, Illinois, where, in fact, I do wear a shirt that has 815 Illinois on it because I have to identify with my state because it's so bad. If you don't <laughs> try to identify with it, it just feels sad to be here. So you've got to own it as a logo. In some way, we will catch you all next time because we know you're waiting with bated breath to see who's behind uh, the, well, the curtain. <laughs>